You're listening to GlendaleCC.org and to the Glendale Christian KY podcast on Apple Podcasts as Senior Minister Adam Hale continues our sermon series, Big Church. Thank you for listening, and as always, we hope that this message encourages you in your walk to love and follow Jesus. Have a great week. In his book, uh, Irresistible, Andy Stanley tells a story about a trip that he was on to China where he was touring a manufacturing company. And on this trip, while he was on this tour of this manufacturing company, a little Chinese girl was shadowing the tour. And at the end of the tour, she asked him a question that he says really shook his confidence. She asked this question. She said, why doesn't everyone in America go to church? Having visited some registered churches and having gained Uh, a greater understanding of what happened in some of the unregistered churches and some of the difficulties of being a Christian in China, Stanley understood the depth and the perspective and the context of her question. What she was asking is this, why in a country where you have the freedom to worship God, why in a country where you have the freedom to rally around this message that so changed her life, why wouldn't everyone who has the freedom to be a a part of a movement like this, why wouldn't you go to church? And he said he had really no good answer for her. I mean, how could he explain to her that in America there's so much freedom? How, How could you not take advantage of it? In America there's so many opportunities, and yet there's so much apathy. In America there's so many church buildings, and there's so many differences, and yet there are so many lake houses, and there are so many opportunities. How do you explain the American church experience to a young Chinese girl who's heard just a a handful of messages and yet it has so changed her life and that she can't even imagine that if you had the opportunity to go worship every day, why wouldn't you? And again, really no good answer. But he said it was a reminder to him and it should be a reminder to us that the church is a really big deal that the church is a movement and from what we've been saying remember we've been saying since the beginning of this series big church that the church is a movement it's not an institution it's not a location it's not a building that the church is a movement and it's a movement around a very simple message that Jesus is the Christ the son of the living God that he died on a cross and he rose from the dead and so in this series big church we've been looking at the book of Acts and we've been asking this question How in the world did the church survive the first century? How in the world did the story and the message of Jesus survive the first century and make it to the 21st century? And the answer to that question is found in the book of Acts. And and as we began the story, we discovered that on day one of the church, on opening day, the day of Pentecost, that over 3,000 people embraced the message as eyewitnesses of the resurrection of, of the resurrected Jesus flooded the streets of Jerusalem and they and they began to tell this message the story of Jesus and they said that he has risen from the dead and 3,000 people embraced that message and then a couple of weeks later more people began to embrace that message and there began to to be a groundswell and over 5,000 people by the end of a couple of weeks had embraced this message of Jesus and then because of that there began to be this this um, tension there began to be some tension and a a uh, more tension between uh, the Roman authorities and the, and the Jewish temple authorities because there was this little delicate balance of power between these two because there was, there was peace between them. And now this movement of people who were following Jesus was disrupting this balance of power. 
And this movement was, it was anti-Roman because Rome had crucified their leader. And this movement was anti-Jewish because, because their leader had spoken out against the Pharisees. And now instead of one in a dozen, now there are over five, six, seven, eight thousand people running around the streets of Jerusalem saying Jesus has risen from the dead and, and he's the Messiah and things are changing and we can never go back to the way things used to be. We won't go back. And so consequently, persecution broke out. And that's where we, we left off in the story last week. The religious leaders, they, they dragged the, the apostles in. They dragged Jesus' followers in and they brought them in before the Sanhedrin and they warned them, stop talking about the resurrection. Remember we said they didn't even want to say the name of Jesus and they told the apostles, you don't say the name of Jesus. That J name, stop talking about it. Don't say it anymore. And, and as a warning to them, they brought them in and they flogged them, which is that they, they nearly beat them within an inch of their life. They said, go home, shut up. Don't say any more about this guy. And what did we, we, we read last week? We left off the apostles, Acts chapter 5. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. And day after day in the temple courts and from the house to, the, and house, to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. You know, we don't find them huddling together going, how can bad things happen to good people and, and where is God and, and if God really loved me. We find them stepping out and being incredibly bold and saying, in spite of what you tell me and in spite of what you say and in spite of what you're going to do to me, we cannot stop talking about what we've seen, this resurrected Savior. He is the Messiah and we won't shut up. We can't shut up about this because this is a message for the entire world. And remember, two weeks ago, we stood up and, and we prayed the first prayer that the early church prayed. We prayed for boldness. Remember that? And then last week, we gave out these little bracelets that were a reminder to us that we want to be like the apostles and we want to be bold. And if you didn't get one, uh, you can, they're out on the information desk. You can pick one up because they're, they're just visual reminders. And if you're like me, you kind of have small wrists, and so they, they slide down, and they're, they're kind of irritating at some point in, in the day. And so you're like, what is this thing on my hand? And then you look down and like, oh, yeah, that's my bold bracelet. And it's just a visual reminder throughout the day that I'm going to be bold in my faith. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to take a stand and I'm going to talk to people about my faith. Well, as the weeks ensued and the church continued to grow and grow and grow and, and it overflowed out of Jerusalem and into the surrounding areas, things got big and it got complicated. And they began to develop some hierarchy and some structure to the local church in which it, it had to. And other leaders began to surface and take on some responsibilities. And one of those leaders was a man named Stephen. And we don't know much about Stephen other than at, that he surfaced and became basically one of the first deacons of the local church. One of the first servers of the church. And Stephen began to speak out boldly about his faith. And because he was not one of the apostles, the Sanhedrin and the Jewish leaders thought that they could uh, take advantage of the situation. And, had, and so they had Stephen arrested. And they began to pay people to say things about Stephen that Stephen didn't say. They said, if you, we'll give you some money if you go out and you say things that, that Stephen said uh, that he didn't actually say. And, and so they paid people to do that. And so they arrested him. And at the end of their charges, Stephen gave a defense. And if you can read all of this for yourself in Acts chapter 7. And at the end of those charges, Stephen gave this defense. And his defense is basically a, a, a message of the Old Testament proving that Jesus is the Messiah. And this message, it, because it's 
from the Old Testament and it's two religious leaders of the Sanhedrin, it really fires them up. It gets them mad. It gets them, in fact, it gets them so mad that they pick him up, they take him outside of the walls of, of the city and they start picking up rocks and they stone him to death. That's pretty mad, isn't it? And so Stephen becomes the first martyr of the local church. And once he's killed and there's no negative reprisal from Rome, Rome basically looks at it and says, okay, well, that was your all's problem and you handled it, and so not our problem. Because there's no, no negative reaction from Rome, it empowers the enemies of the church to begin a widespread persecution of the church and against all of those who were naming the name of Jesus and embracing Christianity in Jerusalem. And because this reads so much like history, Luke explains what happens next. He introduces us to this period of persecution that breaks out against Christians. And as he introduces us to it in sort of a strange kind of foreshadowing kind of way, he introduces us to a character that would, that would begin to make the biggest difference in the local church. Here's how Luke in the book of Acts explains what happens next. It's Acts chapter 8, verse 1. He says, and Saul was there. That's at the at the stoning of Stephen. And Saul was there giving approval of his death. Now Saul is the Hebrew name of the man that we would, we would come to know as the Apostle Paul. But the name Saul, the person of Saul, he's standing there when Stephen was being stoned and he's giving his approval. And here's what happens next. It says, On that day a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Which, that was a fulfillment of what Jesus said. Remember, in the first week of this series, we read that verse, that you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to all the ends of the earth, Acts 1.8. And so because of the persecution, the new disciples, the new followers of Jesus, many of them headed for the hills because the persecution was so intense. Verse 2 says, godly men, godly men buried Stephen and they mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church, going from house to house. He dragged them off, both men and women, and he put them in prison. And the reason he went from house to house is because that's where the church leaders were. That's where they met. They met in homes. And so Paul, or Saul, he began to just put on a full court persecution of the church. Uh, he became the number one inquisitor, the, the number one enemy of the church. And he just would track them down and arrest them and, and, and put them in in prison and persecute him he his goal and his mission thinking that he was serving God was just to stamp out the local church and Luke tells us for three years for three years this went on unchecked for three years he continued to persecute the church to arrest Christians throw them in jail many of these Christians were put to death and while he persecuted the church the church continued to spread basically he would kick over an anthill and the ants would scatter and, the, and, and by persecuting the church, he drove the message uh, of Jesus. He drove the message of Jesus into the countryside and outside of, of Palestine. And at the end of three years of unchecked persecution, something incredible happens. And it changed everything for Paul, and it changed everything for the spread of the gospel. Here's what Luke tells us happened in Acts chapter 9. It said, Meanwhile, while Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples, he went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus. Essentially, he goes to the, to the high priest, the person in charge, and says, I would like actual authority to go and continue arresting these Christians, and I'd like to start in Damascus. And it says, verse 2 says, So that if you found any there who belonged to the way, 
And that's kind of interesting because at this point in, in history, Christians are not called Christians. There, there wasn't the church in terms, of esta- in terms of establishment. This entire movement, because that's what it was, it was a movement, it's called the way. And the reason it's called the way is because Jesus commonly taught, he would say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He said, I am the way. And so when people, when this movement is gaining ground and people are trying to name, come up with a name for this, they, they didn't come up with Christian yet. They're trying to come up with a name for, for what do we call all these people that are Jesus followers. And, and this, this idea, this teaching was so central to, to what Jesus said, to his, his teaching. They just said, well, we'll call them followers of the way. And so that's what they called them, those who belong to the way. He said, if I find any that belong to the way, whether men or women, he didn't care. He might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. And so he's on his way to Damascus. He's got his letters. He's got his permission to arrest those that he might find and drag them back to Jerusalem to to be tried. And it says, verse 3, it says, As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground, and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Pay attention to that last word. Why do you persecute me? Now, if the church were the church like most of us think about it, in today's terms, the voice would have said, Saul, why do you persecute it? You know, it being the church, the institution, the, the building, the organization, those people, the, those pastors, those, those leaders. But here in the first century, as they're beginning to understand what, what it re- what's really going on, the voice says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Which I'm sure he thought, wait, wait, just a minute. I'm, I'm not persecuting a, a me. I, I'm not persecuting a pronoun. I'm persecuting an it. I'm persecuting a thing, a movement. But verse 5, it says, Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. He says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And here's the implication of that. What you do to my people, you do to me. That's what Jesus is saying. What you do to my people, you do to me. And the presence of my people is the same as the presence on earth. And so, so do you know what that means for us? We, the church, are the representation or the representatives of Jesus on earth. Not individually, but collectively. Not individually because you're not that good. I'm not that good, okay? But collectively, we are the hands, the feet, the mouthpiece of Jesus on earth. And even in the first century, there was a recognition that this movement collectively represented the person of Jesus. And so he goes on. Jesus says, get up and go into the city and you'll be told what to do. And so Saul gets up and he realizes he can't see. He's literally blinded by the light. And so he stood up and the people around him take him by the arm and they lead him into Damascus. And for three days he sat in somebody's house. And he, he's not able to see, and he just, he, he just begins to pray, oh, you know, oh my gosh, what has happened? He, his entire worldview has literally been turned upside down. Meanwhile, there's another guy in Damascus who's, who's praying. His name's Ananias, and this is where his story begins. Verse 10 says, In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias, and the Lord calls out to him in a vision, Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered, The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on on straight and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. And Ananias is thinking, I I recognize that name. That name rings a bell for some reason. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. 
In other words, are you sure, God? Because I think he's here looking for me. I've heard about him, and I think he's here looking for me. I don't think I should go looking for him. And this is what it says. And Ananias continues, And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name. Notice that, not simply my message, not simply my teaching, but my name. To proclaim my name to the Gentiles and to their kings and to their people of Israel. Because to the Gentiles, this was not just a Jewish message. This was not something that was just for those who lived in a region where they understood the Old Testament context. This, was just for, this wasn't just for people who were looking for a Messiah. This was for the entire world. And God chooses the most unlikely candidate in the first century to be the mouthpiece for, of, of the gospel for the Gentiles. And we need, so we need to understand who the Gentile people were. I don't know what the ethnic background of everybody in this room is, but I'm going to guess there's not a lot of Jewish people in this room. And so we need to understand that. If you're not Jewish, you're a Gentile. And God chooses a, a, a Jewish man who, who was a Pharisee, who, who probably has most of the Old Testament memorized, who knows all about all 613 Levitical laws, who knows that you're not supposed to eat certain kinds of meat, and, and if they've got split hooves or whatever, and you can't eat bacon, you know, he wouldn't appreciate my socks this morning. He, he, you can't eat any of that kind of stuff. And he's persecuting the church. He's putting people who claim to follow Jesus, he's putting them to death. And God says, this is going to be the guy who's going to take my name, not just my message, but he's going to take my name to the rest of the world. This is the guy, Ananias, go. And God says to Ananias, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And so Ananias agrees. I like that, that Ananias agrees with God. That's always probably a good thing, isn't it? And so he goes and he finds Saul. Can you imagine walking up to that house where Saul is at? You're standing on the other side of the door and you're getting ready to knock on the door to go in. Can you imagine knowing that on the other side of that door is a man sitting in a chair who can't see you? You don't, you, you know, you don't know what exactly is waiting for you other than that he's on the other side. You know that on the other side of that door is a man sitting in a chair who can't see, but he's been responsible for dragging people that maybe you know He's been responsible for dragging them off and you've never heard from them again. People that, people that are committed to this movement that you have given your life to and he came to your city to do the same thing to you. He's sitting in this chair and you're supposed to go in and you're supposed to pray with him. That's the job that you were given. So Ananias knocks on the door. He walks in there. He finds Saul, and he lays his hands on him. And Luke tells us that something like scales fall off of his eyes. And now Saul's able to see, and so they pray together. And he explains to Saul that God has given you a unique privilege, a unique mission, and, you, and you're going to suffer greatly. But this mission that you have, this message that you have, is, is to take the name of Jesus to the entire world. And the Scripture goes on to say that, that Saul spends several days with the disciples in Damascus. And so slowly more of the followers of Jesus came and they peek in the windows and, and they peek in the door and sure, sure enough, he's there, but he's not arresting any of them. In verse 20, it says that once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. And all those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't this the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem? This is the guy, right? We, we've heard all the reports about him. This is the guy, right? 
And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priest? And Luke says he gets even more bold. And yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. And then, for the next 12, 14, 15 years, Saul essentially disappears. He speaks up here and there, he shows up here and there, but for the next 12 to 14 years, Saul, Saul basically disappears. He gets his own education, and he begins to study and learn, to study and learn, and he spent time with Jesus' followers. He tells us in the book of Galatians that he, he goes and he spends about two weeks with Peter, just learning from Peter and, and, and getting an education from Peter. We know that he went and spent some time with James, uh, the brother of Jesus. We know that he went to Jerusalem a few times, and he spent some time with the closest followers of Jesus, just soaking up all that he could, he could learn, because at the end of the those 12 to 14 years he's going to launch on what we call Paul's missionaries journeys and then for the next 10 or 11 years he's going to travel through what we know as the Mediterranean Rim through through countries like Turkey and Greece he's going to leave Jerusalem and he's going to get on a boat and he's going to go to to places like Turkey and Greece and he's going to plant little ecclesias little churches little little gatherings Meanwhile, the apostles, they're, they're huddled together in Jerusalem. They're just trying to do one. They're trying to get one right. And Paul on his own is essentially tack, tackling the entire known world. He's like, no, no worries, guys. I'll, I'll, I'll take care of the rest of the world. You guys get Jerusalem. You get one. I'll get the rest of the world. I got it, guys. But for 10 or 11 years, mostly by ship, he travels everywhere he could go. He would go to the synagogue first, and he would convince as many Jews as he could and once they would throw him out, in some cases beat him and stone him and have him arrested, he would, go, he would shake the dust off and he would go to the Gentiles. And he, and he would say, I've got some great news for you guys. God has brought an end to all the religion uh, that you've had in your lifetime. It's the culmination. It's something brand new. God has spoken and he has sent his son into the world. And he did this in Corinth and Athens and Ephesus and all over that part of the world. And he went into major cities and, and, and fearlessly and boldly proclaimed that the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then around 58 or 59 A.D., he was arrested while he was in Jerusalem. And he was taken into Caesarea and, and he was kept in jail for, for a couple of years. And he let them know while he was there that he was a Roman citizen and that he wanted to be tried by Rome. And so he appealed to the emperor. And after two years, he began this long, dangerous journey from Jerusalem all the way to Rome where he was under house arrest. And while he was under house arrest there in Rome, he wrote some of the literature that we're pretty familiar with. He wrote the letter uh, to the church in Ephesus that we know as the book of Ephesians. And then he wrote the letter to the church in Philippi that we know as the book of Philippians. And these letters were written to, back to these churches that, we, that, that he had already established. And after two years in Rome, he was, he was released. And then a few years later, he was rearrested. And he spent about another year and a half again in prison, this time in a real dungeon in Rome. Nero was the emperor during that time, and we know about Nero's fondness for Christians. Nero was the emperor who would use Christians as human torches to light the sidewalks of Rome. And probably one, uh, around the year 67 or 68 A.D., Nero sent his prison guards one morning, early one morning probably, and they came and they opened Paul's prison do doors and they, they got Paul, and they took him out, and Paul very quickly knew where they were heading. It was to, to part of the city where most of the executions were done, and without fanfare and, and without any eyewitnesses, they took Paul out to this place, and they executed him. No witnesses, no fanfare, nothing. They, they just beheaded him. 
And that's where he was executed and his life was ended. But the impact of his life had really just begun. And a year later, Nero commits suicide for, being, uh, for fear of being assassinated by his followers. And today, people name their dogs Nero and their sons Paul. And here's the significance of that. That very bad things can happen to very good people. And God is still God and God still sits on the throne. And very, very unexplainable things can happen to people who are extraordinarily faithful. And God is not rocked by that. God is not changed by that. That is no mystery. That is just part of the story. And it's been a part of the story from the very beginning. And never throughout the book of Acts do we ever find Christians huddled together afraid that God has lost control, that maybe God doesn't love them anymore. What we find is this bold commitment to this life-changing message that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And that was Paul's boldness. And it was his courage to get on a boat time after time after time when he had been beaten and, and, and nearly within an inch of his life after he had been arrested so many times after he had visited so many pagan cultures who were just anti-everything that he had to say. And it's one of the primary reasons that you know about the gospel of Jesus. It's one of the primary reasons that the church has survived the first century and has made it all the way to the 21st century. It's one of the primary reasons that the church became a global church. But there's something else that was extraordinarily important about Paul. Not only was he a missionary, but, but Paul was also a very educated and probably a very wealthy man. And because he was a Roman citizen, he had access to some things that even his brothers in Jerusalem didn't have access to. He had access to, to an education that they didn't have access to. And because of his brilliance, he was able to, for our benefit, to infer from, from Christian Ju Judaism what needed to be transferred to uh, the Gentile world. In fact, we're, he continually got into trouble, uh, and we're going to talk about this more next week, but he continually got into trouble with the Jews in Jerusalem because he kind of had a, a Gentile version of Christianity. But the thing that God raised him up to do was to help those of us who didn't have an Old Testament background, who weren't looking for a Messiah, for the people in his day that weren't looking for a Messiah, to, to understand what the essence of the gospel is, what the essence of his message was, what, what, what was the one takeaway, what was the bottom line, what was the irreducible minimum. And over and over and over, Paul, Paul would go into these Gentile regions and say, you know, into Athens and Ephesus and say, even if you're not Jewish, even if you don't understand the Old Testament, even if you've never read any of that stuff, here's the new thing that God has done in our midst. And in the book of 1 Corinthians, he gives us the synopsis of this message, the takeaway for all of us who are Gentiles, who are non-Jewish people. And in this passage, he defines as clearly as anywhere in Scripture exactly what the gospel is, exactly what the message is that, that had to be transferred from generation to generation. Here's what he describes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Here's what he says. He says, now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you. And he's reminding because he's already been there. And now he's writing to them. He says, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. And then he gives to us in no uncertain terms, if you skip down to verse 3. For what I received, that is, I received from God and from the apostles I, during my, my preparation for ministry, and I passed on to you as first importance. So here's the most important thing. If you have forgotten everything else, if you lose sight of everything else, if you don't understand anything else, here's the most important thing. For, I received, for what I received and passed on to you is first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, 
that he was buried. Because that's what you do with dead people, right? You bury them. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. That he appeared to Cephas, that's, that's Peter, and then to the twelve. And after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. Did you know that? That, that Paul realized and discovered in talking to all the people in Jerusalem that there were points after the resurrection that he didn't appear to just one here and there. Or, or two or three, that he appeared to, to over 500 people. So it wasn't like people could say, well, he, just, uh, you know, he only appeared to one or two, and they had this kind of mysterious vision of a resurrected Savior. He appeared to over 500 at the same time. And then listen to this next part. It says, after that, he appeared to more than 500 at the same time, most of whom are still living. Now, this little document, probably written in the early 50s, 50 AD or so, about 20 years after the resurrection, he says to the Christians in Corinth, I understand this resurrection thing. It's hard, to, it's hard to get your head around. It's hard to believe that somebody could actually die and then raise themselves back to life. I get it. It's, it's unbelievable. And if you don't believe me, you can get on a boat. You can buy yourself a, a boat ticket. You can get on a boat and you can go to Jerusalem. And you can go and you can talk to these people because most of them are still living. They're still walking around. And then he says, though some have died, some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me as the one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle. Now that seems a little harsh, doesn't it? Paul, why would you, call, why would you say that? You've spent the last 10, 12 years of your life traveling all around the world, these dangerous parts of the world, proclaiming the message of Jesus that the Messiah has come. Why would you say that? Verse 9, this is why he would say that. He says, because I persecuted the church of God. Because I persecuted the church of God. I persecuted the gathering, the ecclesia, the movement. I persecuted it. But verse 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace was not without effect. That is a powerful, powerful verse. He says to the Corinthians, I don't know why God chose me. I don't know why God would allow me to bring this message to you. Of all the people that, that he, he should have picked, I am the least of these. But God, God's grace is not without effect. It, and that was central to the teaching of, of Paul. That was central to his message. And so Paul brings us in no uncertain terms, those of us who don't have an Old Testament background, those of us who weren't looking for a Messiah, those of us who aren't well-versed with the Scriptures, he brings us the bottom line that we cannot ignore. It's four simple statements. Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He was raised. And He appeared. That's it. Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He was raised. And He appeared. Here's what he's saying. Look, I know it was seven literal days of creation, right? And I don't know what happened to the dinosaurs. Don't worry about it. Here's what you need to know. Christ died for our sins. He was raised. He was buried. He was raised. And he, he was seen. I know it's like reading Revelation. There's horses and there's fire and there's dragons. And, and the world's going to come to an end. And I don't know how it's all going to work out. And there's numbers and we don't understand all of that. Okay, we'll get up to all that. But here's what you need to know. Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He was raised. And he appeared. And yeah, you've got a lot of questions and you've never read the, old, the whole Old Testament and you don't understand some of the verses in the Bible and some of it's so complicated and you think you've got to go to seminary to understand it and some, some days somebody is everywhere where they need to be with their Bible and you can't even find your Bible. Here's what you need to understand. Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He was raised from the dead. And He was seen. 
And, the, and Paul says, if you're going to wrestle, if you're going to wrestle with something in the, in the scriptures, if you're going to wrestle with the gospel, this is what you wrestle with. This is the starting point and this is the stopping point. All of this other stuff is distractions. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of information in here, but all of it is distractions. This is the foundation. This is, this is the starting point and the stopping point. And this is the message that he took from Jerusalem after he disseminated through all the different stories and after all the things that he learned about Jesus and all of his Old Testament background. Remember, he knew all of the Old Testament. He'd been brought up as a, as a good little Jewish boy. And this is what he would say to the believers in Corinth and Ephesus and all over the world. He would say, here's what you need to know. Christ was sent into the world to die for your sins. He rose from the dead. He has been seen and he appeared. So, so, you know, the challenge for you and for me is to ask the question, have you ever embraced that personally? Because see, many of us as children, somebody sat us down, our parents sat us down and they explained it to us. And, and we didn't know ex maybe exactly what they explained, but at, at that moment it clicked with us that Christ died for my sins, that he was buried and that he was raised from the dead and he was seen. And, and we entered into a faith relationship with our Heavenly Father. For some of you, it was at camp. For some of you, it was at a church service. It was at a church gathering. For some of you, it was at home. But at some point, the, the, the thing that we all have in common was that it dawned on us. Not that we understood the whole Bible. Not that we could work through all the discrepancies in the gospel accounts, but that it dawned on us. That Jesus died for my sins, that he was buried, that he was raised from the dead, and that he was really alive because somebody, no, not just somebody, but some bodies saw him. Paul says over 500 at, some, at the same time. That's what brings us together. That's the unifying theme. That's what we have in common with Christians all over the world. That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, who died for our sins, was buried rose from the dead and was seen so here's my question as we wrap this up has there ever been a time in your life that that you had that kind of aha moment where you said i see this i believe it i i want to embrace it have you ever expressed to your heavenly father that christ died for my sins he was buried that he rose from the dead and that he lives today and that i want to embrace him as my personal savior has there ever been that moment for you? I know that some of you have questions that are so sophisticated that I'll never be able to adequately um, address them for you. But the real issue is what have you done with the gospel? What have you done with the gospel that Christ died for your sins and rose from the dead? And if there's never been that moment in your life for you, I, I, I want to give you that moment today. Because today is the perfect day for that because you're in the gathering. Because we're a part of the movement and, and so if during this message, message there was something that just clicked, great, because this is the perfect opportunity. And see, remember on the first day of this message, of this series, when, when we talked about how the people responded. They, they, they said, okay, well, well, what do we do with all of this? They, Peter, Peter was preaching and they said, what do we do with all this? And Peter said, repent and be baptized. That's what you do with this. And baptism is such a beautiful representation of, of what Jesus did. That Jesus died for our sins, was buried, 
was raised and was seen. That's exactly what baptism is all about. Because in baptism, we call bap- the, the baptistry a watery grave. We call it that for good reason because in baptism, we die to our sins. We die to self. We die to our sins. And that's what Jesus did on the cross, right? He died. And in baptism, when, when you go under the water, you are buried. But you don't stay buried very long. Jesus didn't stay buried very long. He, he borrowed a tomb. Right? They had to borrow a tomb because he didn't, stay, he didn't plan to stay dead very long. Three days, actually, right? And in baptism, we don't plan to stay dead very long, just a couple of seconds, right? And when you're raised back to life, you're raised as a new creation. Jesus was raised back to life, not as a new God, as the same God, but as a God who now had conquered death. And when you're raised, you're raised as a new creation who has forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. And now, Jesus was seen. And you'll be seen. You're not invisible. When you come out of, out of the grave of baptism, you're not invisible. You're going to live life just as you have been among people. And you're going to be seen. And you're going to have the, Holy, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which will make you bold. If it doesn't make you bold, then then maybe it didn't take, maybe we need to do it again. But it will make you bold, I promise you. It will make you bold. It will. You will be bolder. And so you'll be seen. And so baptism is a beautiful representation. And so if you've never responded with the gospel, then maybe today is the day that you embrace the gospel, that Jesus died for your sins, was buried, was raised from the dead and was seen. You say, well, I didn't come prepared for that. Well, we got, we got stuff back there. Well, my family's not here. Well, let me tell you, there will always be an excuse not to do it. There will always be an excuse not to do it. Jesus could have made plenty of excuses not to go to the cross. I can't imagine that that was a pleasant experience. There would have been lots of excuses not to, but he only needed one reason to go. And it was me, and it was you, and he went. So don't make excuses. If you need to embrace the gospel, let me pray for us. And would you have the boldness as we sing to step out and, and do something with the gospel? Let me pray for us. Father God, we love you and are thankful for Paul, for men like Paul, who took the message of the gospel to the world. For people like me and people like everyone else in this room and around the world who weren't Jews, who weren't looking for a Messiah, who would have never known about a Messiah, who would have never known that we could have had peace with you, we could have had forgiveness with you. And yet now because of his boldness, his courage, we know that we can. And for many of us, we have found that peace, we found that forgiveness, we have, we have found that eternal life because Christ died for our sins, was buried, was raised, and was seen. Father, I pray that that would land somewhere with each of us and that we would respond in the appropriate ways. Father, may we be bold that we would step out, that we would live in such a way that the world around us would take notice. Father, if someone here this morning needs to, to respond, Father, give them, give them the little nudge that they need. Father, we love you. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.